Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. As you know, we had been looking at verses 1 to 9 with the theme of verse 1, standing firm in the Lord. But now the Apostle Paul turns his attention to some, what you might say, concluding thoughts. But while they are concluding thoughts, they're very instructive to us. And so today we're going to be reading Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Hear the word of God. Through the Apostle Paul as he penned these words, born alone by the Spirit. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And so while Paul is concluding his thoughts, thanking them for a gift, the subject of these verses really is Christian contentment. As sinful human beings, we are prone to be discontent. We are inclined to discontentment. Believers in the Lord Jesus are by no means excluded from this temptation to be discontent for we are still fallen although redeemed we have remaining corruption and we will have this remaining corruption until we see Jesus face to face and so we are prone to being discontent as well and so until we see Christ face to face we must battle discontentment and we can be discontent with and about anything We can be discontent about material possessions, our economic status, and our jobs. We can be discontent about how we look. We can be discontent about our circumstances. We can be discontent about our relationships, our parents, our children, our husband, our wife. We can be discontent with our church. We can be discontent about the past the present, and sometimes we're even discontent about things that haven't even happened yet as we look toward the future. We can even be discontent with God in our sin. We can be discontent with his providence and his workings in our lives, sometimes even with his character that is only holy and good, and yet we're discontent with it. Sometimes we're discontent with his word. We don't like what we read, so we complain about it and disobey it. We can be discontent with and about pretty much anything. And discontentment has many companions and friends. Friends like greed, covetousness, bitterness, ungratefulness, and complaining. Discontentment can lead to anger, 
which then can lead to murder. Discontentment can lead to adultery and divorce. And discontentment has destroyed many marriages. So we see that discontentment is an ugly sin that must be battled by the believer. The human heart is a breeding ground for discontentment. Stagnant water can be a breeding ground for thousands of mosquitoes in two to three days. But a spiritually stagnant heart breeds discontentment much faster. If we're spiritually alert, purposing to walk in the spirit, then our hearts will not breed that discontentment. But if we're not careful, sometimes we can be walking in the spirit and in a a moment begin to walk according to the deeds of the flesh and manifest discontentment. Therefore, we have to be on guard against it. And the believer must not only be on guard against it, but must actively seek to kill discontentment and replace it with contentment, joy, thanksgiving, and trust in God. But it's something we have to learn. And in the words we just read in Philippians chapter 4, 10 to 13, we see that the Apostle Paul himself had to learn contentment. And so do we. Now, let me give you an outline as we go through this passage of, of the headings so that you see the progress we're going to be making. There are going to be five points. We're going to go over three this morning and next Lord's Day morning, the last two. But here are the five points in the outline. First, we'll see a definition of contentment, a definition of contentment. Then we'll see the foundation of contentment. Thirdly, we'll see the comprehensiveness of contentment. And I'll explain that when we get there. The comprehensiveness or comprehensive nature of contentment. That will be this morning. The next week, we'll see the school of contentment. The school of contentment. That is, we have to learn contentment. And we'll see some ways that we do that. And then finally, next week, we'll see the secret of contentment. So let's begin this morning with first a definition of contentment. What is contentment? If we're to kill discontentment, then we must know what it means to be content. Paul said, I have learned to be content. And he uses there in this passage the noun content. The word means to be satisfied or satisfaction. The word refers to a state of mind which is satisfied, a person who is satisfied with one's lot and one's circumstances. The Apostle Paul used the verb for this word, translated content, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 8, where he wrote, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. The writer to the Hebrews uses the verb form in Hebrews 13 verse 5 when he says, Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The verb translated to be content in various places in the New Testament in the active voice means 
that something is enough, it's sufficient, it's adequate for us, and therefore we're content with it, we're satisfied with it. In the passive voice, it means to be satisfied with something. And so you can see sort of a theme. Contentment means being satisfied. So discontentment is not satisfied. Contentment is satisfied. Discontentment says, I want something else. I need something else. What I have is not enough. I want something to be different. I need something for me to be happy, so to speak, and contented. But what I have currently is not enough. I'm not satisfied. While contentment says, I have all I need. I need nothing else. Why? Because God is good and all wise. And I trust him and I'm satisfied with what he has given me and the lot, the circumstances that I'm in. So discontentment says, I need more. Contentment says, I have all I need. Discontentment is not satisfied unless it amasses things. When it comes to material possessions, I want more. But contentment says, in relationship to material things, there's nothing greater that God can give me than he's already given me. He is wise. I have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is nothing else he can give me. And material possessions don't ultimately satisfy. So all I need is God himself ultimately. Discontentment doubts the goodness of God and the wisdom of God. But contentment trusts God. It trusts his goodness and his wisdom. Arthur W. Pink wrote this, Discontentment, though few appear to realize it, is sinful and a grievous offense against the Most High. And then he begins to describe it in this way. It is an impugning of God's wisdom, a denial of his goodness, a rising up of my will against his. To murmur at our lot he says, our circumstances is, listen, to take issue with God's sovereignty, quarreling as it does with his providence, and therefore it is being guilty of high treason against the king of the universe. Now those are sobering words, aren't they? This is no minor matter to be discontent is to impugn God's wisdom, deny his goodness, rise up my will against his is to take issue with God quarrel with God as if we know better than God A.W. Tozer goes on to say since God orders all the circumstances of human life then every person ought to be entirely satisfied there's that word again satisfied with the state and situation in which he is placed Jeremiah Burroughs the Puritan in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, defined it this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'm not a Puritan, and I'm not as crafty with my words as A.W. Pink as well, so... Here's how I'll describe it. Contentment is being satisfied with what God has provided you, 
with what God is doing in your life and where he has you. It's being satisfied with what God has provided, what he is doing in your life providentially, and where he has you in your circumstances. So the question this morning I want to ask is, are you content? Are you satisfied with where God has you? What he has graciously given you and what he is doing actively in your life? How often do you complain with your tongue or in your heart? How often do you get angry about your circumstances? How often do you say, if only in your heart, if only, if only, if only this was not the case in my life, or if only I had a different circumstance, if only I had a different marriage, a different place to live, a different situation, if only I had this or that, if only I had this, then I would be joyful. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be content. See, those are are statements of discontent. And all these things are sins against God. And the reason is because the root of contentment is a right knowledge of God and then acting upon that knowledge of God. So that helps us at least just understanding, a definition, an understanding of contentment. But that brings me to the second point, and that is the foundation of contentment. The foundation of contentment. Brethren, the foundation of contentment is God himself. Knowing him and then acting upon who he is. So let me repeat that. The foundation of contentment is simply God himself. Knowing him but also then acting upon that knowledge of who he is. So contentment, the foundation of it, it's rooted in who God is, the very character of God. And so knowing God and his character is necessary for having true contentment. Now in the passage in Philippians 4 verse 10, begins this way. Paul begins to speak about contentment by... looking at a particular circumstance, but he begins again with words of joy. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now this isn't new in Philippians. I mean, this has been the theme, right? Remember back in chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And in chapter three, verse one, rejoice in the Lord. And then he begins to expound the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has this joy in the Lord, which is closely tied to contentment. But notice that even as joy, as we've already seen, is in the Lord, even so contentment is found in the Lord, a knowledge of God and acting upon that knowledge of God. So Paul's joy was in the Lord and his contentment was in the Lord. It was rooted in the very character of God. And so all aspects of God's character should be a source of joy and contentment in the life of the believer. But I want you to consider just two aspects of God's character and who he is. Remember, we've been going through Philippians, so you know 
Paul writes these words from prison. He is under house arrest for preaching the gospel. And he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die as he faces trial. And yet, he's rejoicing again. And he's content in any and every circumstance. And the reason is because he knows certain things to be true about God. God is sovereign. And God is good. And he not only knew these things, but Paul acted upon these things. He lived in light of the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so the foundation of contentment is the sovereignty of God, or you might say the providence of God, and the goodness of God. You can draw a direct line. If there's someone who has true biblical Christian contentment, you can draw a line to. They have a knowledge of God's sovereignty and they're living in light of that. They have a knowledge of God's goodness and they're living in light of that. And those are the lifelines, so to speak, that are at the foundation of their contentment. And so understanding the, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, and the goodness of God is a source of contentment for the believer. God is sovereign. He rules over all creation. We just sang that this morning. He's king. He's, he's sovereign, and he has a sovereign plan and eternal counsel, and he's working out his sovereign will. And he is providentially involved in all the affairs of his creation in the lives of his children, to work out that sovereign plan. And this is a great source of not only joy, but contentment for the believer. The heart of the contented person rejoices in the fact that God reigns. I, I hope that when we sang that hymn, Behold our God, and, and Behold your God, and we're singing that, the 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 singing, there's, there's this joy in singing that. I hope it's, it's not the music, it's not the sound, the tune, but it's the words Amen. that we, we say, I, I, as I behold my God, nothing can compare. He reigns over all things. He rules over all things. And he's working out his sovereign will. That Then that brings joy in your heart. But then closely akin to that, then should be contentment in every circumstance. First Chronicles 16, verse 31, Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. And the believer says, Yes, my heart is glad in those things. He works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Remember, Joseph, this was Joseph's contentment, we might say, even in difficult circumstances that he had gone through. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God, God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. He understood God was sovereignly at work, and these trials in his life he was satisfied with. And he was faithful in the midst of them because he understood God is sovereign, and he is working out his sovereign will. Now notice in Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, Paul is not complaining. There's no hint or wor of worry or fret. He's trusting in his sovereign God. And he had been trusting in his sovereign God. He had a need. He's in prison. And he has a material, monetary need in, under his house arrest. But he's not fretting. 
He's not worried. He knows God is sovereign. So he says, I greatly rejoice, or I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, the, the background to this, as you know, that they, the Philippian church had sent a gift to Paul, imprisoned in Rome, under house arrest, for particular needs, material needs that he had. And they sent it through Epaphroditus. So now, as you remember, as we've gone through the book, that Epaphroditus is the one who bears that gift to them. And then Epaphroditus ministers to Paul. And then he takes this letter, the letter to the church, back to Philippi. And so he speaks here of their concern for him, but, but they had not, until this point, met that need because they lacked opportunity, it says in verse 10. Now, what was this lack of opportunity? Well, we really don't know for sure. Paul doesn't name it, so we don't know. They knew, but we don't know. It's not revealed, but it could be that maybe they themselves were poor. They were struggling with their own needs. We know in 2 Corinthians 8 that Macedonian churches were poor. There was a need for some to meet that need. And so maybe the church at Philippi had need themselves and they were meeting various needs in the congregation. Or maybe there was previously no one to deliver the gift to Paul. Remember, it would be a long journey. It would be something that would be dangerous to travel that distance. And and there was no one with the occasion to be able to drop what they're doing and just go and be that servant, that minister to Paul's need and to bring that gift to him. But whatever the case, now they have, he says, revived their concern. They had given in some way to meet his need. Epaphroditus delivers it to them. And so here we see this occasion for Christian love and this occasion for Christian love from the church at Philippi to the Apostle Paul was then an occasion for Paul to instruct them, for him to teach them about contentment. And even if they had not sent the gift, which was a good thing, it was a good thing for them to do as they had opportunity and now the ability, he says, I was content in the circumstances I was in. Thank you for meeting this gift. But Paul here is now saying, but I want to teach you some things. Even if you had not, I wasn't going to complain. I wasn't sitting here under house arrest complaining, where's the church at Philippi? Why aren't they meeting this need? So let me pause here and just make some application. Remember the verse, verse 9 last week, Paul said, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Remember, we saw in those verses that Paul is calling them to be obedient disciples. Disciples of Christ, but as they observed his life, as they received instruction from him, they were to to heed that instruction. Paul was an obedient disciple himself. He was a disciple. He was a teacher. He was an example of godliness. He was a disciple of Christ who was satisfied in every area of his life, contented, even in prison. He was then also a teacher who would use that circumstance to teach spiritual truth to the church. He's been doing that all along. Remember chapter 1, verse 12? I want you to know, he's telling the brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he uses that as a teacher to encourage the church 
that they might rejoice that God is at work even in persecution. And his life was an example of godliness. An example of godliness that would call others to follow that example. You've learned and received these things. You've heard these things. You've seen them in me. And so you do these same things. And so now he uses it as an opportunity to instruct them about contentment. He wasn't fretting. He wasn't worried. And while he thanks them for the gift, he's, he wants them to know he wasn't brooding in discontentment that they had not met his need earlier. We learn from this that discontentment often gives way to conflict in relationships. If he had been discontented, then again he would be complaining at least in his heart. And by the time a gift came, it wouldn't be thank you for for reviving your concern. It's about time. Paul, if he was discontented, would have complained about the Philippians. He would have become bitter and angry. He would have been saying, where is their gift for my need? But there's no bitterness or hardness of heart. Instead, Paul understands the circumstances of the Philippians. And he knew that God was in control. He rested in the providence of God. And this all was a cause of contentment. How often are there conflict so when you go back to the root of it it's really discontentment toward God we're complaining and grumbling in relationships because we don't understand that God is sovereign over that as well we say you should meet my need you should maybe materially but maybe spiritually or some other way and we we reach out for people in dissatisfaction you meet my need you meet my need you meet my need and they respond in sin and now there's conflict in the body of Christ because everyone's selfish remember he's already been talking about do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit and really at the root of it is we've forgotten there's a sovereign God who's good who's Sovereign over those relationships and circumstances. And we need to bow humbly before him and say, you're God. So what conflicts have you had or are currently in? Could it be they're rooted in your discontentment with God? Are they rooted in your lack of trusting in your sovereign God? Sometimes it's a lack of understanding of the goodness of God. See, Paul isn't complaining because he knew his circumstances were orchestrated by a sovereign God. And he knew the goodness of God. He knew the goodness of God and salvation. He just expounded upon that in Philippians chapter 3 as we have it in our Bibles. And he understood the goodness of God in sanctification. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God knows our needs. Matthew 6, 32, he was a disciple of Christ. He knew that Jesus said, your father knows your needs. He's omniscient. He knows these things. He's a good heavenly father. He won't give you a stone. He gives good gifts. Paul understood this. And so just those two things are so foundational. The sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. 
those two things become the foundation of Christian contentment. And so the contented person knows the character of God and he acts upon it. He knows what's true about God, about God and that directs his life into not only joy, but also contentment. You might say, but you don't understand. This situation is difficult. And I don't understand how this particular thing is for my good. Listen, is he not wise? Do you not believe him to be good and wise? Not only good in his intentions, but good in his works. That God is in his sovereignty orchestrating all things for his glory and for your good. So you see here, the foundation of contentment is God and his character. And when we understand God's character and live in light of it, when we understand his sovereignty and providence and live in light of it, his goodness and live in light of it, then it cultivates not only a joyful heart as we've seen in Philippians, but a contented heart. Now I would submit to you that a person's joy and contentment And the quality of that contentment or lack of that contentment is directly related to what you're seeking contentment in. In other words, we could just, again, couple joy and contentment because they're so closely related. Our joy and contentment is linked to that in which we're seeking satisfaction. So if you're seeking satisfaction, contentment in money, then you'll have joy in proportion to money's ability to give you contentment. And if you're seeking satisfaction in a person, ultimately, you'll have joy in proportion to that person's ability to give you joy, to give you contentment. And here's the problem. We often are looking. The foundation of our quote-unquote contentment is not God, his sovereignty, and his goodness, but it's money, a possession, a person, a feeling, whatever it may be. And those things cannot ultimately bring contentment. They cannot ultimately satisfy. Your job cannot satisfy you. Your career cannot satisfy you. One day that job's going to be over, one way or the other. And don't fall for the lie that a relationship in and of itself is going to bring you contentment. Marriage in and of itself does not bring contentment. God brings contentment. He's the foundation. Don't fall for the idea that sex has the ability and the power to give you true and lasting joy and contentment. Now, those things are good in and of themselves. Work is the will of God. We're to labor. It's even before the fall in Genesis. They were to toil in the garden and work. It's a good thing. Relationships are good things. They've been created by God. Marriage is a good thing created by God. Intimacy in marriage is a good thing created by God. They can only bring any measure of contentment, though, to the degree that you partake in them lawfully and biblically with the foundation being God himself. And so lasting contentment is found in the giver of the gifts, not the things themselves. 
And so sometimes we go to things that, again, God has created for his glory and for our good, but we begin to cling to them as though they are the things, they are the foundation of contentment and joy. When they're not, God is. And when our contentment is in God, his character, his providence, his goodness, and all that he is, now we can enjoy those things, those good gifts, not as the foundation of our joy and contentment, but as good gifts from the one who is the foundation of our joy and contentment. I hope you understand the difference. I think sometimes we understand the difference when we speak about it, but we're not quite as discerning when it comes to what is actually true about the foundation of our joy and contentment. And so what we need to do is really examine that from the scriptures. And what God does sometimes is remove even good gifts that it might expose whether or not the foundation of our contentment is God himself or the good things that he has given. So we need to see discontentment for what it is. It, it really is. If the foundation of it is God himself and his providence, his sovereignty, and his goodness, then discontentment is a practical denial of the providence of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. But contentment is being satisfied. In what or in whom? In God and in God alone. So as you grow in your knowledge of God, and then the result of that is you're living in light of that and you're growing in your love for God and you're living then for his glory alone, then that is the way in which we grow in contentment. So there's no substitute. Our brother and pastor Ernest was sharing this in humility, these things that are spade work, so to speak, as he refers to them, the to killing sin and putting sin to death. And sometimes we want the shortcut. How can I find joy? How can I have contentment? And we're going to bypass the biblical means. No, the foundation is no God. And of course, by relationship to that, know his word, rejoice in the Lord, love him, and delight in who he is. Understand his sovereignty, his providence, his goodness, and then Apply those things to your life. Let that be the foundation. And so we see the foundation of contentment is God himself. But here we see Paul trusting in the providence of God, the goodness of God. he's He's not forgotten that all of his circumstances are within the sovereign will of God. And therefore, he's not complaining about the Philippian church not meeting that need earlier. He's just thankful to the Lord that God has brought it about now. If it hadn't happened, he says, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, he says, I've learned to be content if I'm in want and in need. If the gift had not come, nothing about my contentment would have changed. Now the good gift comes, and he thanks him and he rejoices in the Lord. But he's still content. Either way. So we see a definition of contentment, the foundation of contentment. But lastly, this morning, consider the comprehensiveness of contentment. The comprehensive nature of contentment. And what I mean by this is when we are cultivating this kind of contentment, whose foundation is in God, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, 
then it touches every area of our lives. It's comprehensive. There is a comprehensive nature to contentment in God. When we are content and cultivate this kind of godly contentment, then it aids us in satisfaction, contentment in other areas as well. It's comprehensive in its effect and it bears fruit in the whole life and the whole soul. Now you remember in my introduction to the sermon, I said this, discontentment has many companions and friends like greed and covetousness and bitterness, ungratefulness, complaining, anger, even murder, even if it's just word murder or heart murder, adultery, immorality, all kinds of friends and companions with discontentment. But even so, contentment has companions, so to speak. It bears fruit. The fruit of contentment in regard to possessions and material things. It, it bears fruit there. I'm content with what God has given me. It bears fruit in regards to thankfulness. The tongue is affected when there's contentment in the heart. Relationships are affected when we have this true contentment. Now we're thankful for relationships and those relationships now bear fruit. Godly fruit. We're content with God's good gifts like marriage in the marriage bed. So it bears the fruit of faithfulness in marriage and fleeing from sexual morality and enjoying the good gift God has given. And see, contentment is comprehensive. And when we cultivate that kind of true contentment, it begins to affect every area of our lives. Consider contentment and the tongue. When we're content, it touches the tongue. In Philippians, you find no hint of any complaining from the Apostle Paul. And you say, why? There's so many answers to that why question. But one of them is, he was content in Christ. And therefore, that had touched his tongue and was bearing the fruit of that. So when he put pen to paper, he was rejoicing, he was giving thanks, never complaining. It was the Apostle Paul who himself wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so by the grace of God, he did it. He gave thanks. It touched his tongue. Consider contentment and trials. We understand the, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God over every circumstance of life and the goodness of God. Then we can say, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 to 4. Only a contented person can really believe and act upon those words. It's because we know something to be true that we can rejoice in trials and be content even in trials because we know that God is testing our faith that it might produce spiritual maturity. We know something to be true about God. And therefore, we don't complain in trials. We rejoice in trials. The contented Christian trusts and obeys even in the midst of trials and doesn't seek to bypass the trial by disobedience. Let me try to get out of this through some means 
that is contrary to what God has commanded. No, your will be done. And this is your sovereign will. And see, this is the kind of contentment that now bears fruit and there's not anxiety and worry and fear. God's sovereign over all things. He's good. He's brought these circumstances. So I rejoice and I'm content with what God has brought and therefore it cast out anxiety and fear. Consider not only contentment in the tongue and how it affects the tongue and how it affects how we go through trials, but consider how contentment affects temptation to sin. Now, obviously, discontentment is sin itself, but discontentment, again, often comes from pursuing sin and not repenting of sin. The love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and we begin to pursue those things thinking that we can find contentment in those things. But if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see the futility of King Solomon when he was pursuing satisfaction and joy in those things. He says, vanity of vanities. If you begin to seek contentment in money, take that as an example. Remember 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich, that's their pursuit. That's their desire. That's what's driving them. He says they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, when we're content in God alone, then now we don't have this inordinate desire for riches. We have a stewardship mentality. What God has given me is his sovereign will. And I'm to labor and be faithful in my labor. And for some, he grants more than others. But whatever he gives me, I'm a steward of that now. I'm not to lust after riches. I'm to desire to use it to God's glory. And now I'm content with whatever God gives me, even if it's just what I need day by day. Give me this day my daily bread. True contentment is not found in pursuing broken cisterns. It cannot satisfy Jeremiah 2.13. It's not found in pursuing sin. It's found in pursuing God, pursuing Christ and his glory. And see, all this now, when you get to this point in Philippians, before we've even gotten to the school of contentment and how he learned contentment, you're seeing the reason why Paul is there is because of everything we know to be true of him. All the things that we, through the scriptures, have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, verse 9 we're now saying, oh, this is what leads to that kind of contentment. True contentment's not found in sin. It's found in God. And it's found in righteousness. And so you see how when you understand contentment biblically and you understand the foundation of contentment, then you begin to put it into practice. You see how it begins to affect other areas of your life and you begin to realize, oh, it's been discontentment that is sometimes at the root or one of the things that has led me down a path of pursuing riches, of an inordinate view of labor that has made me pursue it 
for the thing itself rather than to the glory of God. Oh, this is why now I can't be content unless I'm married, or I can't be content unless I have this, which is an inordinate sinful desire outside the will of God, some sexually immoral desire. No, I need to be content with my wife. What a good gift from God. You begin to see all of this is related to that as well. And now as you cultivate true biblical contentment, you begin to see the fruit of it with the tongue and the heart and pursuits and sin and trials. The comprehensive nature of it. But ultimately, consider contentment in the gospel. And we'll close with this. And the next week we'll see the school of contentment and the secret of contentment in these verses. Contentment in the gospel. Brethren, let me just encourage you in this way. You've been chosen by God for salvation by his sovereign grace, even though you deserve eternal condemnation in hell. You've been shown great love and mercy in Christ. Your sins are washed away. They're forgiven you. As great as our sin is, it was placed on Christ and he bears the wrath that our sins deserve. Believer, you've been justified. You've been declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. Your sin imputed to his account so that you're reconciled with God, have peace with God through faith in Christ. You're no longer under his wrath, but now you are one who has eternal life. You've been redeemed. You've been bought out of slavery to sin. You've been set free to serve the Lord Jesus. And you've been given the Holy Spirit a promise until the day that that con- of the consummation of your salvation on the last and final day. And you have a place reserved for you in heaven. How can we be discontent? How can we not rejoice and be content in all that Christ is for us when we have the precious gospel? If you're in Christ, it is inarguable that you have so much for which you should be thankful and content. For which is worse, the discontentment of the unsaved or the discontentment of the child of God who has every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? But finally, if you're an unbeliever and you're trying to find contentment and joy in things that do not satisfy, those broken cisterns through sin and selfishness and relationships that God has created for his glory, but you're seeking to pursue those things for your glory and your pleasure, and and you're not under the lordship of Christ. Listen, it may give you some passing pleasure and some type of supposed contentment for a moment, but in the end, let me say, apart from faith in Christ, it will lead to eternal, and there's no words to describe it. If I can use the word eternal discontentment, It will be eternal wrath. Those things do not bring contentment. They don't bring joy. There's only one person who brings that kind of joy and contentment. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I plead with you. For those of you who have been pursuing sin 
and ignoring the gospel of Christ. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rebellion against Christ and come humbly to him and hear the gospel. Hear the good news that there is a savior. Repent of your rebellion and come humbly and bow before him and say, I trust in him for the forgiveness of my sin. I've been pursuing broken cisterns. I've been created for his glory. And I've been seeking my own. For that is the only way to true joy and to true contentment. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you that while the world offers peace, while it offers joy, while it offers contentment, Lord, you have opened our eyes to see the futility and emptiness of those things. Father, I pray that we would find contentment and satisfaction in you and in you alone. For you are sovereign over all things and you are wise and you orchestrate all things for your glory and for the good of your children. May we rest in these things. Father, I pray that we would find joy in your goodness and believe your promises that you do cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. Those who have been saved by your grace. Father, I pray this will be the foundation of our joy and our contentment. And I pray that these things, as it's cultivated, would begin to affect every part of our lives. Father, forgive us, for we have fallen short. Lord, I pray that even as we have here in sacred scripture, the life of one who, as a disciple of Christ, had been growing and sanctified and learned contentment. Lord, may we learn from him as recorded here in your word that we too might know the secret of contentment. That we might know how to be content in every and any circumstance that we're in. For ultimately, all we need to be satisfied is to be reconciled to you and to walk with you our Savior and our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.